Welcome to our continuing lessons in the final countdown. Last week, we studied the reality of hell. This reality lays the groundwork for the salvation offered by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. If there were no hell, mankind might not need salvation, and therefore mankind might not need Jesus. But we know there is a hell, and we know surely many people we come into contact with every day are going there. Now that we have laid this groundwork, let's take a look at contemporary history and the book of Revelation. In the Bible, it said when the Euphrates River runs dry, then immense things are on the horizon, perhaps even the foretelling of the second coming of Jesus Christ in the rapture. Revelation 16:12 reads, The sixth angel poured out his bow on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Okay, I'm not trying to sound dramatic or anything, but it looks like that time could well be nigh. Together with the Tigris, the Euphrates cars through present-day Syria and Iraq before emptying into the Persian Gulf. For thousands of years, the Twin Rivers have allowed farming communities and grand cities to flourish in Mesopotamia, which is considered the cradle of life in some of the world's earliest civilizations. However, for several decades, it's become increasingly apparent that the Tigris-Euphrates River system is drying out. A government report in 2021 warned that the rivers could run dry by 2040, if not before, due to declining water levels and droughts driven by climate change. NASA's Twin Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment, which is called GRACE, those satellites collected images of this area in 2013 and found that the Tigris and Euphrates river basins had lost about 34 cubic miles of fresh water since 2003. That data shows an alarming rate of decrease in total water storage in the Tigris and Euphrates river basins, which currently have the second fastest rate of groundwater storage, storage lost on Earth after India. The strain is already starting to show, but a total collapse of the river system would spell disaster for that region. Millions of people come across Turkey, Syria, and Iraq they, they rely on the, the Tigris-Euphrates for water. As the rivers start to struggle, international disputes over access to water or will heat up, as they already have. These arguments have also prevented governments from reaching any solution to the problem. Parched for water, these countries could also be facing a looming public health crisis. The British Medical Journal investigated how a myriad of health emergencies are building in Iraq because people are struggling to get their hands on clean water. Diarrhea, chickenpox, measles, typhoid fever, and cholera are sp currently spreading across, across Iraq because of the water crisis, and the government no longer provides vaccines to its citizens. The drying up of the great river Euphrates is foretold in the book of Revelation and in Isaiah. In Isaiah, it says the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea, and with a scorching wind, he will sleep it, sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. Does that mean that now is the time? Let's look to the Word of God. First in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 44, it says that Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Then as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. 
You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. But then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one go on the housetop. Go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and <clears throat> excuse me, perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass, there are vultures will gather. Verse 29 says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day, Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Let's stop there. One of the important verses in this entire chapter is, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Today we're going to dig into eschatology. 
Eschatology is the study of what the Bible says is going to happen in end times. Many treat eschatology as an area of theology to be avoided, just like hell. That's why God laid this on my heart, and that's why I'm going to preach it. By way of introduction, I want to briefly mention the four methods of interpretation that people take when they approach the book of Revelation, and how you approach the book will determine how you interpret it, and how you interpret it will determine what you receive from it. There are four primary interpretations of the book of Revelation. They are the preterist interpretation. This view sees the events that recorded in Revelation as being a historical record of events of the first century. This view requires a belief that Jesus has already returned to the earth and ignores the fact that Revelation claims that much of its content is clearly prophetic in nature. Then there's the idealist interpretation. This is the liberal view. The idealist looks at the Revelation as a collection of allegories and stories designed to depict the struggle between good and evil. This view doesn't see the events of Revelation as actual events, but as mere myths and fables. Then there's a historicist interpretation. This view considers Revelation to be a sweeping overview of church history. It sees this book as a timeline of church history from the apostolic era down to this present day. Most of the events in the book are considered to be past events. Those who hold to this school of interpretation often engage in spiritualizing the text and viewing it as pure allegory. This view ignores the book's claims to be prophecy and often offers odd interpretation of strange applications of the text. Then there's the futurist interpretation. This view looks at the book of Revelation and sees most of the events as being future in nature. This view holds that the book of Revelation is mostly prophetic in nature. This view takes a literal approach to interpretation. The futurist interpretation allows all the events of the Revelation to be actual events. The people, place, occurrences are not spiritualized and are relegated to the, or, and relegated to the realm of allegory or myth. Everything the book says from the rapture of the church to the second coming of the Lord Jesus to a literal millennial kingdom is seen as a real, actual, future event. This is the only school of interpretation that allows the book of Revelation to be considered as it is written and for the stated purpose for which it was written. This is the path of interpretation that we will follow for our study. The book of Revelation is an amazing book. It's also very complex. There are a lot of twists, turns, rapid plot developments, and it, and it, and it has all the elements of a great thriller. However, in its pages, you'll find action, suspense, mystery, wonder, fear, drama, horror, and much excitement. While it takes a full 22 chapters for all the action to completely develop, John gives us an idea of the rest of the book at the very beginning. He encourages us to study that which is coming in the remainder of the book. The verses we've read today are an introduction to the material that Jesus Christ said would be developed as we move through the verses of Revelation. We don't know when he's coming back. Revelation tells what is going to happen before, during, and after. It tells us what is to come. So the prelude of Revelation, first of all, is the destination of the letter. It's written to the seven churches which are in Asia. This letter was to be sent to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. These churches are mentioned by name in verse 11, and they're dealt with in detail in chapters 2 and 3. We'll consider each of these congregations when we get to those verses. For the time being, what we need to remember about these churches is, first of all, 
that were real, literal congregations that existed at the time that John penned this book. Jesus spoke to them about real saints, real sinners, real situations, and real solutions. Secondly, these churches are representative of every Christian church that has ever existed. Every church contains some of the characteristics that mark these early churches. So while this letter was not specifically addressed to your church, this book has as much to say about us as if it were addressed to us. The letter was sent to the seven churches. This is the first use of the number seven in Revelation. This is a number that will show up time and time again as we study the book. Seven is a number that suggests perfect, completion, fullness. So when the Bible mentions seven churches, it is referring to the church in its fullness. That's why I said that even though this book was not specifically written to us, it still speaks to us as though it were. Seven is a prominent number in our world. There are seven colors that make up the light spectrum. There are seven notes in the musical scale. There are seven days in one week. Seven appears frequently in the Bible. God, God commanded seven feats in the law. There are seven secret or mysteries in, the Christ, in Christ's parables of the kingdom. There were seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. At Jericho, seven priests carried seven trumpets, and they marched around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. In this book, in the book of Revelation, the number seven is used 49 times, which is seven times seven. Here are some of the sevens in Revelation. Hope you're taking notes. The seven churches, verse 1, 4. Seven spirits, verse 1, 4. Seven stars, verse 116. Seven seals, verse 4, 5. Seven horns, verse 5, 6. Seven eyes, verse 6, 6. Seven trumpets, 8, 2. Seven angels, 8, 2. Seven thunders, 10, 3. Seven heads, 12, 3. Seven crowns, 12, 3. Seven plagues, 15, 1. Seven vials, 17, 1. Seven mountains, 17, 9. Seven kings, 17, 10. There are many other sevens in the book. This is just a small sample of the many that we see. The desire of the letter was to grant unto you and peace. This is the classic New Testament dedication. John greets them with the prayer that they will continue to enjoy the all-sufficient grace of God and the peace of God which passes understanding. While it's, the book of Revelation is a difficult book filled with scenes of judgment and condemnation, it's a book of joy. It reveals God's power in the lives of his people, and it points to a coming world where grace and peace will reign forever. This is a fitting way to introduce the book. Then there's the deity of the letter. This great promise of grace and peace comes to us from the Holy Trinity. Notice the word from in verses 4 to 5. This word is used three times. Each time it appears, it introduces another member of the Godhead. God is the source of all grace and peace. These two verses remind us that this book was not the creation of a man. It is the words of God to man. Therefore, it carries with it awesome power and ultimate divine authority. Let's examine the deity behind the letter. The Sovereign Father. This identifies the God who is the self-existent one. The God who calls himself I Am in Exodus 3.14. The God who's always existed in the source of grace and peace. The God who is the Eternal One who lives in three dimensions, past, present, and future, all at the same time. Satan can't do that. 
He's the source of all grace and peace. This God, the one who's always existed, who exists and who will always exist, is the source of this grace and peace. This God who ever, never changes in Malachi 3, 6, Hebrew 13, 8, and James 1, 17. He is our source. Then there's the sufficient spirit. The phrase, the seven spirits which are before his throne. Speak of the fullness, the perfection, and the completeness of the spirit of God. It refers to his ministry and our lives. He's able to give us grace and peace because he's so perfect and he's so complete. He is all we need to pass through this life. He is sufficient. This phrase may also have reference to Isaiah 11, 2, where the Bible says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Then there's the splendid sun. Now John tells us there's a third source of grace and peace. He tells us that these things come from Jesus Christ. When John mentioned the Father and the Spirit, he spoke of them in symbolic language. When he speaks of Jesus, he uses straightforward language and says Jesus on the center stage. Why? The purpose of this book is to reveal and unveil Jesus. So right here in the beginning, John tells us exactly who Jesus is. He does not want there to be any confusion about Jesus, who he is, or what he's about. John knows that believing right about Jesus is absolutely critical to getting everything else right. If you get your beliefs around Jesus messed up, you're going to be off base in everything you believe. John gives us a three-fold description of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His revelation. Jesus is called the faithful witness. This little phrase calls to mind his coming to the world the first time. Jesus came to reveal the Father. John 14, 7 through 9. John 12, 45. Jesus is the only person in history who has the right to bear the title to be Jehovah's Witness. You see, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's witness to the world. In this age, the church is his witness to the world. However, neither the church or Israel is a faithful witness. In fact, the best we can be is a mere reflection of God and his grace. Jesus Christ was and is God in human flesh. He's more than a reflection. He is God. Therefore, he was able to give us a faithful witness to the person and work of the Father. John 18, 37. His resurrection. Jesus is called the first begotten of the dead. Now, Jesus was not the first one to get up from the dead. There were some in the Old Testament and several in the Gospels, but Jesus was the first one to get up and stay up. The rest died again. The word translated first begotten comes from the word that gives us the word prototype. Jesus set the standard that the rest will eventually follow. When the Bible says that Jesus is the first begotten of the dead, it does not mean he is the first one to get up. He means he is the first in preeminence, in other words. He set the standard. He's the prototype. He's the example of what will happen to all those who believe in him. Just as he got up to stay from the grave forever, so those who trust in him will also experience a resurrection one day. Because he lives, those who have their faith in him have passed from death unto life. John 5, 24. And they will never die. John eleven twenty eight. 
25 through 26. It establishes his royalty. The third title given to Jesus in this verse is the Prince of the Kings of Earth. This establishes Jesus to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This phrase pictures him as the one who's in absolute control. We will see that Satan sends his king, the Antichrist, into the world. He will rampage and exalt himself above all that is called God. But even he will have a master, and his name is Jesus. And one day, every ruler, every tyrant, every dictator, every king, potentate, etc., that has ever lived will bow before the nail-pierced feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and call him Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the ultimate ruler. Then there's the praise of Revelation. Having told us about the Godhead, the source of grace and peace, God, John gets so caught up in who Jesus is that he offers a hymn of praise to the Lamb of God. Let's take a minute to listen to that. He's praised for his loving ministry unto him who loved us. Don't let that past tense verse throw you. John is merely reminding us that Jesus loved us in spite of what we were and still are. His love is unceasing, unfailing, and unconditional. Isn't that great? Unconditional. He loves us, and that's cause enough for loud and long praise to be offered to him. Unconditional love. It was his love for us that brought him into the world. It was his love for us that bound him to the cross. It was his love for us as a guarantee that can never fail. He's praised for loosing ministry and washed us from the sins of from our sins in his own blood. The word wash here means to cleanse. Jesus shed his blood on the cross, and when we trust him, his blood washes us whiter than snow and cleanses us from every stain of sin. By the way, did you know that each of us belongs to this thing called salvation? The text says our sins and his own blood. All we had to do to contribute to our salvation was sin. That's all we had to contribute to our salvation was sin. He contributed his blood, and his blood washes away all our sins. When we stand before God covered in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, God can no longer see our sins. All he can see is the blood of Jesus that covers us. Verse 7 and 8, there's a promise of the revelation. These last two verses give us a little glimpse of what we can expect as this book unfolds. They offer us a bit of promise of the exciting things that are going to happen in this book. Let's look at the promise of the revelation. First, there's a promise of the coming one. The world has waited in anticipation for 6,000 years for the Redeemer to come. He came the first time was born of a virgin and died on the cross to purchase the redemption. He's returning in the clouds above this earth to catch away his bride in the rapture. Then one day, Jesus will return to this earth in power and glory. He will defeat the enemies of God, and he will establish his kingdom here and will reign for a thousand years. This verse is about that event. This does not speak of the rapture, but of his revelation. Then there's the method of his coming. He cometh with clouds. This is not the first time that Jesus clothed himself with clouds. He led Israel through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud. He ascended back into heaven riding a chariot of clouds. 
in Acts 1, 9. When he comes back, he will again surround himself with clouds and will appear in his glory and power. He's coming. Then there's the manifestation of his coming. Every eye shall see him. The thought of everyone being able to see the same thing at the same time all over the world was considered impossible just a few decades ago. But even now we know with the advent of satellite technology, people around the world will witness the same scene simultaneously. When Jesus comes, he will not need Fox News or CNN to broadcast his coming. He will appear in the clouds and the whole world will be able to see him at the same time. This tells us that his presence and glory will be undeniable in that day. Then there's the misery of his coming. The Bible makes it clear that the second coming of the Lord Jesus will not be a pleasant event for the people of this world. Jew and Gentile alike will well when they see him coming. The Jews will weep because their fathers rejected him and their people paid a, paid a high price for their rebellion. Gentiles will wait and well because he comes to judge sin and sinner alike. When Jesus comes, there will be horrible judgment as he treads the winepress of the fiercest and wrath of Almighty God. John hears this and says, Amen. That is, so be it, or may it come to pass. This is a prayer that every saint should echo. Let us pray that whatever the cost, Jesus will come and set this world as it ought to be. In verse 8, there's the promise of a concluding one. Yes, Jesus is coming and will signal awful judgment for this wicked world, but will also signal the culmination of all things. What the Lord began in Genesis, he will conclude in Revelation. Thus his announcement, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord. As Alpha and Omega, Jesus is the one who knows all things. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. These letters and the others in between can be used to express all the idea and knowledge of mankind. Jesus lets us know that he is the omnipotent one. He sees all and he knows all. The phrase beginning and ending reminds us that he's the one who started the universe on his present course, and he's the one who pilots it to its proper conclusion. In other words, he declares himself to be the one who is in control. He is the Lord. Then those the Lord's authority. Jesus also calls himself, which is, and which was, and which is to come. With this phrase, he proclaims his deity. After all, this is the title used to describe the Father in verse 4. As God, Jesus is all-present, all-knowing, and all-powerful being who transcends time and space. He has the authority to do all things that he says that will come to pass in this book. In other words, he will see to it that all things go just as they have been planned and that everything foretold in this book will come to pass just as he has said it. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about it. It doesn't matter what I think about it. It matters what God's word says. After all, just as surely as there's a heaven for the redeemed ones, there is a hell for the lost ones. And there's the Lord's ability. Jesus declares himself to be the Almighty. This word says the one who holds sway over all things. It proclaims him to be the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is the one who's able to bring everything he's planned and promised to pass. He will do it and no one will stop it. You know, I heard a story about one of the most stirring pages in English history was of 
the conquests and crusades of Richard I the Lionhearted. While Richard was away trouncing Saladin, his kingdom fell on bad times. His sly and graceless brother John usurped all of the prerogatives of the king and misruled the realm. The people of England suffered, longing for the return of their king and praying it might be soon. Then one day King Richard returned. He landed in England and marched straight for his throne. Again, that glittering coming, around that glittering coming, many tales are told, woven into the legends of England. One of them is the story of Robin Hood. John's castles tumbled like nine pins. Great Richard laid claim to his throne, and none dare stand in his path. The people shouted their delight. They rang peal after peal on the bells. The lion was back. Long live the king. One day a king greater than Richard will lay claim to a realm much greater than England. Those who have abused the earth in his absence, seized his domains, and mismanaged his world will all be swept aside. So, my friends, this is a lot to look forward to. And every bit of it's going to happen, just as he's promised it will. So what are we to do with this information? What are we to do in light of his coming again? Allow me to offer a few thoughts about what we should do with a message like this. We should be sure that we're ready to meet him when he comes. Matthew 24, 44. We should be in prayer for those who are not ready. And we should get busy and tell them how to be ready. Mark 16, 15. We should realize that our time is short in this life and we should commit ourselves to doing all we can for him while there's still time. John 9, 4. Is there something he would have you to do today? If you've never committed your life to Lord Jesus, you've never accepted him as your personal savior, the beginning of these lessons that we're talking about from the book of Revelation should give you incentive to do just that. If you've not lived a Christian life, and perhaps you've done things that you, you've, you're sorrowful for, you can rededicate your life to Christ. He's standing at the door waiting. All you have to do is ask him and ask him for forgiveness of your sins. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do that, that will overshadow the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. So if you, if you haven't made a commitment today, you'd like to, please, please do so right now. Our lessons in the coming weeks will continue more from the book of Revelation as we dissect what people have called in the beginning of the book the Revelation of the Apostle John. It tells you in the very first chapter, this is not the Revelation of the Apostle John. This is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your time and attention today. I love you. May God bless you. If you have any questions about today's sermon, please don't hesitate to send us an email at ministry at christ-lives.org. I'll be glad to answer your questions. If you desire prayers, please send a message to the same, to the same address. I'll be glad to pray for you. I consider it an honor and privilege. May God bless you and keep you.